0: Amen. So if you have your Bibles, perhaps you can turn with me to um, Genesis chapter 3. We've been working through the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. The recording didn't go very well last week. I think it was because I didn't have the microphone turned up. But if you do want to hear it again, I will actually be speaking on that this evening at Castle Salvey. But Genesis 3, and we'll be reading... From verses 1 to 7. Let's pray as we come to the sacred ground that is God's word. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is written and every word comes through your hand. Father, I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit would give me the words to say that I may speak well of Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. There are two ways to tell this true historical story. One is to explain the passage as the story of original sin. That is, we could look at the theological consequences of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Because Adam represented the whole human race, our federal head, every human being is born into the world with inherited depravity and inherited guilt. He represented us. He stood in for us. We all had Adam on our fantasy football team. If you haven't got a fantasy football team, don't worry about it. But when he sinned, we sinned. And so, as his descendants, we have inherited both that depravity and guilt. That is Paul's argument in Romans 5. Sin came into the world through one man, Romans 5 verse 12. One trespass led to the condemnation for all men, Romans 5 verse 18. And Genesis 3 is the explanation for why we are the way we are. And there are a lot of sub-explanations under that macro-explanation. Things having to do with history, personality, family, education, media, or opportunity. there are lots of secondary reasons why we sin, why we rebel. Why it is not hard to look at our world and our country and see a place that is torn apart by sin. But ultimately, Genesis 3 tells us, this is why we are the way we are. And notice I said, not this is the reason they are the way they are, whoever they is, but we. The world, with all its sadness, its suffering, its strife today, is because of Genesis 3. What we've seen ravaging our nation, our world, is the result of the fall in Genesis 3. So one appropriate way to handle the passage is to tell the story of historical sin. But that's not what I'm going to do, because the other way to explain the passage as the story of every sin. How does sin happen in my life, in your life? Why do we sin? Most of us do not wake up with a to-do list of sins to commit today. But we sin every day. So what is so enticing about sin? And why does sin always disappoint? It always does. Well, look at verse 1. The curtain lifts on another perfect day in paradise. It didn't feel like that when I woke up this morning. I... I woke up and I thought did I have a bad dream and they, they were are going to lock us up again and uh, then I remembered they were but so we have had for two chapters a constant refrain it was good 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 very good and on this perfect day a serpent slithers into view and revelation 20 calls him the ancient serpent who is the devil Satan. This raises a number of questions. Most of which I do not have the answers that we might like. Where, does, where did Satan come from? Well, we know from 2 Peter 2 verse 4 and Jude 6 that there was an angelic fall. Though there is a plausible case that 2 Peter is talking about the angelic rebellion in Genesis 6. We might ask the question... When were the angels, however they fall, when were they created? And we don't know for sure. But we know that sometime before God rested on the seventh day, the angels were created. Because he looked and all the things visible and invisible had been made. When did these angels fall? We do not know that either. Sometime after the creation week was over... Because we know that God stepped back and said, Behold, it is very good. And we know at the end of chapter 2, with the man and the woman there, it was certainly good in the known universe that we can see. So we do not know exactly when they fell. There are two Old Testament passages that hint at Satan's rebellion Isaiah 14. We have a taunt about Babylon, Israel's great enemy. And the language used to describe the fall of Babylon is such lofty language that it's speaking more than just the fall of Babylon and perhaps the fall of Satan and his angels. Ezekiel 28. Just as Isaiah was a taunt against Babylon, Ezekiel 28 is a lament over the king of Tyre. And the language again is exalted language which speaks about Eden and describes the Prince of Tyre as one who fell from the splendour of Eden. It's not hard to hear in Ezekiel 28 the lament over the King of Tyre that this might be more about just the King of Tyre. And it's obvious it is more because the King of Tyre was not in the Garden of Eden. Satan was an angel of light who in his beauty and privileged position rebelled grasped after the things of God, was cast down and punished. Genesis 3, we come to Genesis 3, we wish we could answer questions about where the snake came from. And in Genesis, Moses is not interested in telling us about the origin of evil, but he's interested in telling us about the origin of human sin and guilt. So it's important to recognise certain things. Evil in the universe did not begin with man. We will see the sin of the woman and the sin of the man. And Paul connects these dots because it is the reason that we are sinners. But evil did not begin with man. And more importantly, evil did not begin with God. Evil is not an equal with God. The serpent is a serpent. And it is Satan embodying this slithering thing. It was not there at the beginning of the universe that there were two rival powers, God and Satan. No, the evil one is a created being. He has not existed for all time. He was made by the one true God. So evil did not begin with man. It did not begin with God. It is not eternal. The snake is a literal snake. We read in verse 1, it is a beast of the field. The snake represents the personal presence of Satan in the garden. And there is a play on words here, which you cannot see in the English, but it's there in the Hebrew. In Genesis 2, verse 25, it ends that they were naked and not ashamed. And the word naked is "arummin." min. They were arummin min. And then the serpent was more crafty, that is arum and they're tying together that just as the depiction of the good creation ends with the man and the woman, in, which is innocent and unspoiled, unashamed, in the very next curtain to lift, we see a serpent who is Aram, crafty. And his Aram is the undoing of their innocent aram men. And so we are, we are meant to draw lessons from this encounter in the garden. We know from 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 that Paul warns us, do not be ignorant of Satan's devices. So we are meant to draw lessons and see Satan's devices and understand why not only they sinned, but why we sin. So look at the second half of verse 1. First of all, notice Satan approaches the woman instead of the man. Paul in 1 Timothy will mention the woman's deception as a reason why women should not have authority over the man or should not teach in that context. And some people interpret that to mean well Eve was more gullible and that is why women should not teach or have authority over man. I do not think that is Paul's point. I think the point is that this first sin represented a subversion of the good order that God created for men and women. God created it to be very good. And that, and that is why Paul gives two reasons in 1 Timothy why women should not teach or have authority over men. One, because the man was created first and two, because the woman was deceived. But both have to do with the order From the beginning, Satan is always seeking to subvert the order. The woman was meant to be nourishing, nurturing, helpmate for the man. And the man was supposed to be the help, the head and the leader and the protector. So it is not by accident, not because the woman was more prone to sin, but because Satan wants to confuse the divine design. Satan uses the word you, which you cannot see in English, but in Hebrew is a plural you. Eve, notice in verse 2, we may eat of the fruits. In verse 6, she took of its fruit and ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her. It's clear Adam was there all along. So just as Eve engages with the serpent in verse 2, something has gone wrong. He meant to overturn the divine design by talking to Eve instead of Adam. And Adam is passive, not interceding, not engaging, but allowing, not protecting, allowing the woman to have this conversation. So she sets off on her way. And she sets aside her vocation as a helper. And Adam has relinquished his calling as a protector. And as much as Eve does not accurately reflect God's command in talking to the devil, it is on the man because he received the command. It is Adam's responsibility, as Ephesians 5 tells us, to wash his wife with the word, to instruct his wife in the word. Adam was a coward. Adam, Adam, he abdicated his responsibility. So her failure to adequately communicate the word of God to the devil was Adam's failure to adequately instruct and communicate the word of God. Then Satan begins with a question. He doesn't deny the word, did God really say? Now teachers will tell you that there is no such thing as a bad question. We're taught that all the time. There's no such thing as a bad question. This was a really bad question. This was a diabolical question. Who would think that what appeared to be an innocent theological discussion would lead to the ruin of the human race? We want to foster an environment where questions are welcome. But beware of the religious discussion, which is permeated by the venom of the serpent. We still hear that whisper. You may hear it in the words of an academic who says, why would you trust the words of an ancient book? Or the mouth of a postmodern professor. Can you really know what God said? All these people are educated way beyond their intelligence. Or you can hear him in some literary critic. Can you really discover the author's original intent or some revisionist scholar did God really mean this for us today or we hear these who seem very humble when they say can any of us truly claim to know what God really wants which is which is a classic way of saying I'm going to do what I want because you can't tell me what God says or we hear it in a new false kind of spirituality that says God is doing a new thing in our day. And they sound great, but they're not true. We hear the serpent's whisper whisper in a hundred ways, a thousand ways. Each of which has the same desired end, to silence the word of God. Did God really say? Three times the word of God is quoted in this passage, and not once accurately. Once it is quoted in a misleading way. Second, it's paraphrased with important changes. And thirdly, it is denied. Satan begins with asking a question. It's a question that all of us have heard. Did God really say? But Eve's response, far from standing fast against the devil, travels further down the road in the wrong direction. Look what Eve says in verse 2. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It's close, but she misses two important words. Surely and every. She is misleading. Because Genesis 2:16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden except one. And then to see what the woman has done in chapter 3. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. God said you may surely eat of every tree of the garden except one. God's commandment was in the context of great generosity and Eve made it sound stingy. The big idea when God spoke to Adam was that you can freely eat from every tree. There is one that you cannot. The woman admits surely and she admits every. Then the woman identifies the tree by its location instead of its significance. She says the tree is in the midst of the garden. It may well have been in the midst of the garden, but the point is the tree that they were not to eat is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of good and evil was a representat- representation of moral autonomy, to choose for yourself, to know for yourself the choice between what you think is good and what you think is evil. It represents moral rebellion and autonomy. And then notice that the woman uses the language Satan uses. Now, I noticed this you know, properly for the first time this last week. If, you, if, if you've got your Bible, just you, you, if you have a Bible there, otherwise you can trust me on this, Genesis 2.15 It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden. The Lord God. And your Bible should have Lord in capitals. Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man. Lord in capitals. Genesis 2.18. And the Lord God said, Lord in capitals, it is not good that the man should be alone and so on. In the English Bible, Lord in capitals is Yahweh. Jehovah, Yahweh, Elohim. It's the covenant name, the personal name of God. And it's, sig- and it's probably significant in chapter 3, verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God, in capitals, had made. And then he said, the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, and that's in lowercase, you know, that's in, that's, that's in sentence. The author is talking about Lord God, Jehovah. Satan says, Did God Elohim? Removing the personal dimension of the name of God. And Eve follows the serpent. She simply calls God Elohim. But God said. So Eve follows the serpent's language rather than attributing to God his covenant name, the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah. And then Eve also makes the prohibition more stringent than it was. We've seen that the Lord God commanded the man, saying you may surely eat of every tree in the garden except one. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, Eve adds another bit, which is neither shall you touch it. Do you notice that? She adds something. She adds something on. And she, the whole idea is to depict God as bad, as miserly, as some kind of controller. Instead of the context of generosity, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden except one. The woman said, God said we can eat from the trees except this one in the middle and we can't even touch it. She's adding to the prohibition. And she fails to capture the urgency of the warning. See Genesis 2 verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. It is emphatic. That day you will die count on it. It is certain. She fails to capture the urgency of it. And says you shall not touch it lest you die. It is open-ended. Eve disparaged. The privileges God gave added to the prohibition and minimized the penalty. It may seem like an innocent question, but now an innocent conversation is going wrong. And Satan responds and makes counterclaims. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Three counterclaims the devil makes You will not die. Your eyes will be opened. You will gain what belongs to God. Satan is saying, Eve, God is holding you back. And I want us to see that these, that the sin of Adam and Eve is our sin. She's already moved in this direction to move, remove the commandment of God from the context of generosity, which it was. To depict God as somehow st- Overly stringent, as miserly. And now Satan comes right in and reinforces this wrong conception of God. God is holding you back. You will not die. You will be like him. Your eyes will be opened. Do not believe that God is for you. Now everything that Satan says is true and false. Because that's the way he operates. But he rarely comes and tells an outfaced lie. The man and the woman didn't immediately die. When they ate of the fruit. They didn't just melt and disintegrate like a Star Wars film. They were still there. So he might technically be able to say, see, you didn't just keel over and die. It is true. Their eyes were opened. They saw that they were naked. And they did obtain a knowledge which belongs to God. They they grasped this knowledge of good and evil this moral autonomy. So Satan could say everything they said was true, technically true. But I hope we know better than that. A half-truth masquerading as the whole truth is always a lie. Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. He was a liar from the beginning. He is the father of lies. He tells half-truths masquerading as the whole truth, which in fact are bare face lies yes their eyes would be open but they would be blinded to sin yes they didn't die physically in the moment but they died a worse death yes it is true they became like god in a sense but we know from genesis 1 verse 26 they were already like god adam and eve should have said be like god he made us in his image We do not need to be more like God. They exchanged moral autonomy for certain death. And in the most important sense of the word, they did certainly die on that day. For they no longer had daily conversations with God. They no longer were able to work as work was meant to be done. They no longer were able to enjoy perfect innocence and communion with God, with the natural world And with one another. Their sin is wickedness and evil, and it is also folly. It was so foolish, so foolish. The snake only speaks twice. He doesn't give a long speech. He doesn't give a half hour closing argument. He speaks twice in our English Bibles, three sentences. And what does he do? He attacks the two things that stand out the most about God, the Creator, in chapter one and chapter two. What are the two aspects of God the creator that stand most out in chapters 1 and 2? His word is true and all that he does is good. He says let there be light and there is light. It is by his word he separates light from darkness. It is by the power of his word that creates. We see over and over in creation creation. The power and the veracity of the word of God. And what do we also see? That it was good, 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 very good. The two things most prominent about God the creator in Genesis 1 and 2. His word is true and everything that he does is good. God's word is true and everything that he does is very good. And Satan lies about both things. Did he really say, can you trust his word? Are you sure that he is good? Brothers and sisters, that is why you sin. It is why I sin. Because in that moment when we choose sin, we're not trusting that God is good. We don't believe that his word is best for us. And you're not believing that he is good. And in the moment of sin... I think I know better than God. What the Bible says about sex, what the Bible says about marriage, what the Bible says about lying or gossip, are we really sure? And at that moment when you want to grasp that sin in front of you, you are disbelieving that God is for you, not against you. You're disbelieving that God is good, that he withholds no good thing from those who love him. You're saying, I know better than God. The moral confusion in our world is because of this. It's people in their thousands saying, did God really say? Does God know better than me? God has not given me what I really want. And I really want it. I really want it. God is keeping me from something. God is not on my side. That is why we sin. And then look at what happens in verse 6. They take the fruit. Both Eve and her husband. Contrary to our picture books. There is nowhere it says it's an apple. There's nowhere it says it's an apple. The only tree that we know nearby was a fig tree because they use fig leaves to make their loincloths. And fig leaves are the biggest leaves in the garden in that part of the world. So we don't know for sure. I guess if you wanted to make it a pineapple or a banana or something. If I would have a guess, I would say it's a fig. But I don't know. I mean, It's like a little plum-like thing pulled from the tree. Because we know that there are fig leaves in the tree. Nowhere it says it's an apple a royal gala. But Eve falls for the allure of sin. And there are many ways to describe this allure. Sin is practical. It looks practical. It's good for food. Verse 6. It's pleasing to look at. A delight to the eyes. It will make one wise. Some say that sin appeals to the physical, the emotional and the spiritual. Others say it promised food, beauty and knowledge. However you divide it, Clearly, she didn't partake of the fruit because she thought it was broccoli. No offence. Or sprouts. But Eve did not take it because she thought it was poison. Eve did not take it because she knew it was bitter. It looked good. It looked really good. And it was going to make her wise. It was delicious. You see, essentially in the garden we have the same trio of temptations that always attack us either from without as in the case of Jesus or with us from within. Temptation is the the lust of the flesh. The fruit was good for food. Flesh wanted the food. Temptation is the lust of the eyes. It is pleasing to the sight. Verse 6 tells us. Temptation is to the pride of life. She ate the fruit because she thought it would make her like God. Have you ever considered that these are the same three things that Satan presented Jesus with when he tempted him in the wilderness? The lust of the flesh, turn these stones into bread. The lust of the eyes, look at the kingdoms of the world. I will give them to you, and the pride, jump off the temple if you are the son of God. Call your angels to lift you up. It will be such a triumph of your power. 1 John 2.16 describes worldliness as the desire of the flesh the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. These three things do not come from the Father, but from the world. So why do we sin? We sin when we're deceived about the word of God. We sin when we're deceived about the consequences of sin. In verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. And that is the most fundamental lie, brothers and sisters, That Satan continues to tell you and everyone you know that there is no punishment for sin. And if your preacher tells you that, that's because he's a fire and brimstone preacher or he's a Puritan or he reads the Old Testament or something. That's not what God is like. What are you, barbarians? There is no punishment for sin. Sadly, Brothers and sisters, that is taught in so-called churches up and down our land. That there is no punishment for sin. And that is still the lie. That is still the lie. And until people have their eyes opened to see that lie, there will be nothing about the cross of Jesus that is good news. There is nothing about Christ that will be attractive. Until they see that there is a punishment for sin. Satan denies the judgment of God. And we sin because we're deceived about the consequences of sin. Satan did not say that promiscuous sex will leave you with profound regret. He does not tell us that alcohol may leave you destitute. He doesn't tell you that anger will imprison you. He doesn't tell you that lust will enslave you. He doesn't tell you that greed will ruin you. No, no. He sets the bait and then he hides the hook. He presents sin as desirable as what you really, really, really want. And he presents God as stingy. He insinuates that God is not for us but against us. And in keeping this thing, this thing whatever it is, from you, God is not good. And in bringing consequences for your sin, he will tell you that God is not good. Do you see? That church, that church is really old fashioned. I wouldn't go there. They talk about punishment for sin. The serpent whispers in our eyes, God does not want you to be like him. God has given you commandments to harm you. Do what you want and you will be free. All over the world we, we, we hear slogans like can we do it? Yes we can. Or is that Bob the Builder? One of the two. But you know, can we do things? Yes we can. And we're sin because we're deceived about the nature of sin. Satan tempts Adam and Eve with human autonomy. You can be free. And in grasping for devilish freedom they never became more enslaved. It is the, world, it's the message the world shouts at us. You be you. And you will be free and you are enslaved. The devil wants us to make sin appear normal and righteousness look strange. What is the strangest thing in our world today? A person who lives by the Bible. That's weird. Sin is normal, righteousness is strange. So he will make pride seem like self esteem and greed seem like God's blessing. And lust is just a natural part of being a man and a woman. Rebellion is the right of every teenager. Gossip is helpful conversation. And anger is venting. And vanity is feeling good about ourselves. You see? Everyone of it's a sin and Satan paints it as a good thing. Satan will always paint sin in virtues colors. Satan will always paint sin in virtues colors. So it looks good. It feels good. It looks right. Satan gives you the films and the TV shows. You laugh for six months at the sitcom before you realize that you don't think that's sin anymore. Satan promises that sin will make us feel good, look good, be better. So he makes the fruit look good for food, pleasing to the eye, desirable for gaining wisdom, and that is why we sin. And at the end, verse 7, Adam and Eve got what they wanted, which is the tragedy, brothers and sisters. I'm not teaching this as any way in the academic exercise I'm preaching this because it is so true and it is so tra- tragic the tragedy of sin that you get what you want not what you need that's the tragedy of sin I, I have no pleasure in saying this but the tragedy of sin is that you get what you want not what you need they got their food their eyes were open and what they got in sin was not what they thought they were getting from the serpent. Now they know they're naked. They're overwhelmed with a flood of guilt and shame and loss of freedom. They run from God and hide. They turn on God and each other. What was pleasing to the eye now makes their own nakedness to be an embarrassing sight. Again, it's a play on words. Pleasing is the Hebrew word, tawa, and fig is the word, tina. They looked pleasing and in the end you needed to cover yourself because what looked good to the eye has opened your eyes to a world you did not want to know. And their guilt doesn't drive them to God, it led them to self-protection, self-atonement. And that's where we get the expression making fig leaves for ourselves because ever since the garden we're exposed, we're shown to be sinners and rebels and our fallen instinct is not to run to God for mercy but to scramble and hide. Some of you live your lives that way, afraid of what people would really think about you. You may be at church, you may call yourself a Christian. You may even be a Christian, but a shallow one, because your whole life is sowing fig leaves together for yourself. Satan never told Adam and Eve that they would feel guilt and shame, that they would be afraid, that they would be separated from God, alienated from each other. But I cannot leave you with bad news. My time is gone. But I cannot leave you with bad news. Brothers and sisters. God's word is older than Satan's lies. The bread of life is more powerful than the fruit of death. Have you seen this connection from verse 6? It was such a simple act in the garden from the woman. She took the fruit and ate. Take and eat. And the woman listens to the serpent. She took And she ate. Well you may be already drawing in your mind. Take and eat in the garden. Led to the destruction of the human race. But in the upper room. Take and eat will bring salvation to all who believe. Surely Jesus had in his mind this first sin. You took and you ate. And now I give you something better than the fruit in the garden. He gave us his body. That's why we celebrate the Lord's table. I wish we could do that as a response. I really do. Because he gave us something so much better. He gave us his body and his blood. That washes away our sin. Oh brothers and sisters. Wouldn't, wouldn't you not take and eat again? Would you not take and eat spiritually? The curse can be reversed brothers and sisters. The curse can be can be swallowed up because death has been swallowed up in victory. So my prayer in in this sermon this morning is just simply twofold. I pray that this sermon stops somebody from sinning. Maybe in this room or maybe listening online, I hope this sermon stops you from sinning. Someone headed down a path that you should not be on someone contemplating maybe a sexual sin, I hope this sermon stops you from sinning. You're contemplating a decision that you should not make. You've allowed yourself, you've allowed the devil to convince you that what you're doing or the path that you're taking is acceptable, but you know deep down it's not. And you're like Eve and it looks pleasing, it looks promising, and my prayer My prayer is that you'll see the ugliness of sin and you would stop where Eve fell. But my other prayer is for all of us. My hope and prayer is that the sermon would lead all of us to the cross. Would lead all of us to the cross because we have all sinned and we all need a saviour and God has provided one. His name is Jesus. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen. Now we're going to close by saying together the first two verses of Rock of Ages Cleft for Me and then the last two verses I beg your forbearance that you'll listen to me sing the last two verses. So let's say the first two verses together and then I'll sing the last two. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee, let the water and the blood from thy ribbon side which flowed. Be of sin the double cure, save me from its guilt and power, not the labour of my hands, can fulfil thy Lord's demands.